as U.S. investigators encircle oligarchs in Russia, in London, in Ukraine, one man continues to remain elusive. Putin claims an 800-square-foot apartment, a few cars, and a modest salary in 2020, valued at about $140,000. Many Russian experts say he is worth more. How much more? Well, Putin's net worth remains one of the biggest mysteries in global wealth and political circles. Russia For years, we've been expecting the next leak of law firm documents will get us to, to this mystery of solving it, of where Putin's money is. That's Mike McIntyre. I'm an investigative reporter with the New York Times. In his years spent tracing breadcrumb trails from shell companies, law firms, and Russian orchestral musicians. What exactly do they reveal? The main name there is Sergei Radulgin. He's formerly a cellist who's not a businessman. If a man who says to you he's not a businessman has his name over deals worth hundreds of millions, would you imagine that those deals and that money is being held for somebody else? I would. There's one question that remains maddeningly opaque. What is Putin's strategy for holding on to his wealth? The Russian government said on Monday that President Vladimir Putin signed a law that could keep him in office until 2036. It looks like what he's preparing to do is basically ride out the presidency into old age. And if you look at it this way, if he intends to remain in power for the rest of his life, essentially. He doesn't have a big incentive to be hiding money around the world in places that he himself has sort of cautioned others not to do. It goes back to the possibility that he basically has used the Russian state to own and, and control the various luxuries that, that he takes advantage of and he uses. Tonight, there's a new round of punishment from the U.S. and our European allies following those Russian atrocities in Ukraine. For the first time, Vladimir Putin's two adult daughters were sanctioned. It is believed that the Russian dictator and other Kremlin leaders hide their wealth through family members. It's entirely possible that his daughters are holding wealth for him. It's entirely possible that his ex-wife, who has a villa in the south of France, could somehow be connected to him. It's entirely possible that Katie Rotenberg, a judo partner of his from the old days, has wealth stashed away. But it's also entirely possible he has just been using the Russian government to build luxury palaces for himself and own yachts and do other things that he envisions being able to use until he's in his 80s. But according to Mike McIntyre, it's not just the Russian oligarchs, the judo partners, and the ex-wives who are complicit in Putin's shell game. I think that the role of Western professionals in, in all of this, it, it can't be understated. And it also goes not just to, to the Russians, I would add, but also to other elites and oligarchs from around the world, whether it's in the Middle East or from China. Each of these new leaks that happen from offshore law firms, which is the only really the only way really that you get to see this stuff. It's the only way that you can lift the hood and actually see the, the machinations uh, up close. So th th this is a worldwide problem that has been facilitated by professional institutions in the West for decades, generations actually. We see it mostly and hear mostly about it now in the context of Russia, but it's been something which has been a dirty little secret out in the open for a very long time and um, is not confined to Russia. What Mike is referring to are companies like Concord Management, a financial advisory company set in a sleepy town on the east side of the Tappan Zee Bridge over the Hudson. 
the firms that secretly invest money in large U.S. hedge funds for Russia's elite, including Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich. In her 2020 book, Putin's People, author Catherine Belton wrote that Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich bought the Chelsea football club in 2003 on the orders of President Vladimir Putin. To According to Mike's Russia reporting, they're part of a network of U.S. and European advisors, including major law firms, that have come under recent scrutiny for helping oligarchs navigate the Western legal landscape and take aim at independent journalism. Defense lawyers told the court that Abramovich's wealth was to a substantial extent on call when requested by President Putin. Press freedom advocates say the courts are being used to silence journalists. And I think the Ukraine war has somewhat changed that dynamic a bit. I give you, you know, just a personal example. In the past, over the years, when I've written about certain Russian oligarchs or interactions with Russian elites, it would be not uncommon to get a veiled, threatening phone call from a lawyer, from a Western law firm. Interestingly, that has not been happening in the, in the current environment. I think that the what's happening now in, in Ukraine is so outrageous uh, and different in scale that a lot of the companies that have been in, in the past that had no no qualms about threatening Western journalists or, or others or going to bat for them either through lobbying or in lawsuits, they've been quiet. And uh, you know, whether that lasts, I don't know, but I think that what's happening now is just on a different level in the sense that the potential blowback for firms that have long gotten rich off of servicing the, the, the kleptocrats in this way, I think they're finding it more difficult to continue doing that. I spoke with Mike McIntyre April 7th to get caught up on his recent reporting about Putin's wealth and whether tracking it down can actually loosen his grip on Russia. You say in your reporting that Vladimir Putin has a nominal annual salary of $140,000 a year, yet he's rumored to be among the world's richest men. Is that an educated guess, or have some real numbers been put behind that idea? You know, it's one of the more vexing uh, questions for people who have tried to solve the riddle of Putin's purported wealth. You know, there's been a lot of speculation, mainly, that people close to him, uh, oligarchs, old friends, have either been holding money for him or are stand-ins, possessing assets that actually are his, either offshore or in Swiss bank accounts. But there's been no concrete evidence of it. There's been a lot of smoke blowing around. There are leaks that occasionally come out, like the Panama Papers, that raise a lot of intriguing questions about people who are in Putin's orbit that seem inexplicably wealthy, and which kind of fuels, again, the speculation that maybe some of that wealth is actually his. But there's really been nothing to confirm it. The only thing that you can concretely show in a small way is that he... <laughs> physically has been seen occasionally wearing very expensive wristwatches. It also documents uh, the money on Putin's wrist with luxury wristwatches worth more than $700,000. Now, Putin has and you have to wonder how someone who is a lifelong government servant could afford things like that. But be, beyond those examples, which are sort of entertaining, but they don't really get you to where we're talking about, there's been no hard evidence to, to confirm that he has that scale of wealth. There's one theory that... Uh Putin's concerns about Ukraine rose in tandem with Ukraine's concerns 
about corruption? Might some of his wealth actually be in the country that his armies are now savaging? I mean, it's possible. Certainly people close to him have had deep financial connections to Ukraine. Ukraine has, has long been viewed by Russian oligarchs as sort of a, a, a hunting ground. You know, it's a place to plunder. And so a number of Russian oligarchs who were very close to Putin have made their money, or some of it, through basically uh, pillaging natural resources in Ukraine, whether it's minerals or agriculture. Whether or not Putin himself is in the mix in, in that regard is kind of unknown. And I think there's some reason to wonder whether that theory makes a lot of sense. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. If you look at Putin's statements over the years directed at the oligarchs that he tolerates and is in some cases are actually his friends with, he's long warned them about keeping their assets outside of Russia. He has basically told them that you're exposing yourself to exactly what's happening now if you put assets in within reach of Western countries. So if you look at that as indicative of how he thinks about things, there's every reason to suspect that, you know, in terms of his own potential wealth, that he is not exposing himself in that way, and that he he's found a way to keep it beyond the reach of, of Western sanctions, and that it's within Russia. So what you're saying, I guess, is two-pronged. As a head of state, and as a person with access to the assets of his country, he's both harder to pin down and quantify, but also harder to sanction than the oligarchs. But is he using some of the same tools as the oligarchs to obscure his wealth? Well, he could be. And then that's not a very satisfying answer. But, you know, the truth is we don't know, except that we can show, as I, we did with this recent story about the, uh, the state-owned properties, that if you assume that one of the, the handy, well-worn tools of oligarchs and Russian elite to conceal assets is the use of offshore vehicles, uh, shell companies, we have seen the Russian state do exactly the same thing. There is evidence that came forth in the Panama Papers and also the Paradise Papers, which was a, a subsequent leak of law firm documents from Bermuda, that the Russian government itself uses the, the services of firms like that to create offshore daisy chains of shell companies to obscure the ownership of various assets. And knowing that, it's entirely possible and likely, I would say, that President Putin does the same thing, either if not personally, then through the Russian state or through people that are close to him. I want to talk to you more about that post-1991 sphere, uh, a sort of niche special that's risen in the West, in law firms in London and New York and elsewhere, helping these guys hide their money, advising them on how to structure their wealth, helping them fend off attempts to seize their money. Is there a sort of chain of people who are very good at this admittedly rare specialty? Absolutely. There's um, a whole, I wouldn't even call it a cottage industry, that, that kind of undersells it. There's a vast network infrastructure of professionals in the West who have basically put themselves at the service of kleptocrats. And you only have to look at some of the more well-known leaks of documents from some of these offshore firms to, to see it, you know, in, in the UK right now is very much coming to grips with this as they try to figure out what to do about Russian oligarchs who've basically been allowed for years to, to buy up expensive properties in London and, and such. And there was a parliamentarian recently who out loud criticized 
the British practice of this and said, how did we become the, the, the butler to, to kleptocrats around the world? And I give you just one quick example that, that we saw in the release of the, the Paradise Papers, which was a, a term used to describe the law firm files from a, a company called Appleby in Bermuda. Ernst & Young, the very gigantic multinational accounting firm, consultancy firm, showed up in a number of transactions involving Russians that were trying to hide or obscure the ownership of aircraft or other things. They were right in the thick of it. They have a Moscow office, and they're certainly not alone, but there's one example I'll mention. But they were very much facilitating the offshore secrecy that many of the people who are now being sanctioned have long used. One of the people you've interviewed is an advisor to the U.S. Helsinki Commission, Paul Massaro, who's also been advising members of Congress about sanctions. What did he tell you? One of the things that he and others, I think, have made the point of is that sanctions can sometimes be oversold as in terms of their effectiveness. If you look at the track record of Western sanctions against Russia, you can't really see much evidence that there's been uh, an identifiable change in, in position or strategy by Putin. And so it's a, very, it's a very difficult issue. It's like, how do you get, at, get the results you're seeking by inflicting the right level of financial economic pain without having it boomerang back on yourself as a Western nation? And the Europeans are grappling with that right now in terms of their dependency on Russian petroleum products. So I think that some of the, the, the points being made are the sanctions are necessary and to some degree have an effect, if nothing else, by ostracizing those who, from within Russia who would like to be seen as being part of the rest of the world. But you know, in terms of how much effect it will actually have at the end of the day on Vladimir Putin's thinking of things, that's really, there's been no evidence that that has been very successful. Well, you mentioned Britain, and I think it's a great example there's noises in the British Parliament about cracking down on the notoriously loose and welcoming laws that made London a haven for flight capital, not just Russian flight capital, but money from all over the world. Will that capital just pick up and fly somewhere else? Is it mobile? Might oligarchs start looking longingly at either Russia itself or friendly nations where they can park their money instead of Knightsbridge? Well, I think that they may have to do that. Whether or not they want to or expect to get comparable returns is another story. I think that one of the things that's different this time around is we're seeing that the circle of possible friendly countries that could be available to them is shrinking. And I think that there's a reason why much of this oligarch capital found its way into some of the Western countries that we're talking about. It's because they do expect and they do get big returns on investments in luxury real estate and other assets in the UK and, and France and the, and the US. I think that that is much less likely to happen if you were to seek investment opportunities in many other the countries that are left to them. So that, that, is, that is one way that you can see that sanctions do have a concrete effect, but the, the question remains, does that pressure being applied to the elites in Russia somehow work its way back to having an, an effect on Putin? And Putin publicly has been very disdainful of this idea. He's criticized 
the oligarchs, he's made cracks about how they may have to go without their foie gras and other extravagances, and, and that he's taken a very much hard line and kind of dismissive of, of their concerns until we see that they're is any evidence that their discomfort can translate somehow into the possibility of a, a palace coup, say, or something like that. It's hard to know how much of what's happening to them is just simply a misfortune that is confined to their own bank accounts or if, or if it will translate somehow into political repercussions. Well, one important thing the French Riviera or Cyprus or London or New York offers that places like Russia can't is the rule of law, due process, legal protection for private property. It's not just that it's a a better place to invest, the United States. You also know that the president can't just make you into a poor guy overnight, which is true of a lot of the places where that capital might go as an alternative. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, we've seen it with specific oligarchs, or I should say former oligarchs within Russia that either decided not to dance with Putin or were somehow gained his enmity and, and wound up either in prison or dead or, or lost all of their assets. But it's a double-edged sword. You know, if you are someone like an Oleg Deripaska or Arkady Rotenberg and, or one of these oligarchs that has been in the news a lot, or Roman Abramovich, and you do move a lot of your wealth or some of it outside of Russia and into places where, as you say, the rule of law does apply, what's happening now is that has come back to bite them in the end. The rule of law is now being applied in a way that leaves them exposed and they're forced to give up ownership of soccer teams and and they're losing control of yachts and other luxury assets which would not be happening to them if they had kept their money in russia so to that extent vladimir putin's you know warning to them over the years to that that you're setting yourself up for this uh, appears to be to be coming well if you look down the road and i i'm always a little uncomfortable putting reporters into the future predictions business and i understand why they're not happy about it when i do but if this thing goes on for a while is there likely to be a change in the architecture of you know banking rules in cyprus transparency laws on wall street a way to monitor the bewildering array of uh, shell companies and hidden owners. Does the invasion of Ukraine carry embedded within it the potential to just make it a much more complicated world for the Usmanovs and the Abramoviches and so on? That's definitely happening already in the UK. You're absolutely right that the United Kingdom has been forced to reckon, I think, with the extent to which they've sort of welcomed Russian money over the years in in ways that are now becoming very embarrassing and inconvenient to them. In terms of transparency and, you know, disclosure, there's actually been a number of steps already taking place over the last five or six years, largely as a result of these leaks that I've mentioned from offshore law firms. You you can't underestimate the degree to which the, the embarrassment level from these disclosures has forced some countries to to come to grips with their role in all of this. And Cyprus is an example. They have actually adopted rules over the recent years that have required more transparency in forcing the disclosure of who the beneficial owners are some of shell companies. A number of offshore locales that fall under the jurisdiction of the UK 
have been moving in that direction. The U.S. also has imposed new regulations that the Treasury Department has been implementing that do require more disclosure of ownership of LLCs. So I think we're I think we're we were getting there already in some regard, but I think that definitely the Ukraine conflict, because of the unusual degree in which Western countries have have unified around this issue, and in the case of the UK especially, have been chagrined, you know, left chagrined by it. I think they're likely to see more of a push in that direction. And far be it from me to force you to expose any trade secrets or trade craft, but it it occurs to me that when you're running this kind of business. There are a lot of people in a lot of chains of intelligence that know stuff. And an event like the Ukraine invasion, and an event like the growing pressure on these super wealthy men and their assets, does, does that encourage people to start coughing things up? Are you hearing things that you might not have six months ago? Yeah, and we're actually getting, uh, I'm sure the New York Times is not the only uh, recipient of this, there's been plenty of tips coming in about potential assets and, and other information about oligarchs and, and Putin himself. The stories have emerged about this $700 million yacht, Sheradza, which uh, is speculated to be somehow linked to Putin. Some of the, the original disclosures around that resulted from tips from people who you know, who purported to know something and, and came forward because of the publicity around this whole issue. I think that certainly Western intelligence agencies have shown their ability to know to some degree where assets may be hidden and who owns what, which, if I can circle back to something we started talking about at the beginning, makes me, again, wonder why, if that's the case, there hasn't been any more concrete evidence <clears throat> of things being actually owned personally by Putin. Because if you assume that some of this is within the ability of intelligence agencies to, to know or be aware of, you'd think that now would be the time, if not before, to, to make it public or leak it somehow. Well, happy hunting. I'm sure this is a intriguing and tantalizing seam to be mining right now, as, and occasionally frustrating as well. Oh, ab- absolutely. It's been a, a deeply uh, a deeply vexing process, but and there may be no easy answer to it, but it's, it's a fascinating and newsworthy one. Mike McIntyre of The New York Times. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ray.